0: This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going to have someone on the show who is more than a living legend. Uh, He is one of the most important voices in this community because what he has brought to it, uh, in my new book, Them, I make a point of talking about his work and uh, what he has brought. I'm, we're going to be talking to Robert Salas. I'm sure you he needs no introduction for most of you. Uh, he's a retired United States Air Force officer. He witnessed a UAP event firsthand at a, uh, an airbase. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, I think it, I mean, a missile base. I think it's an extremely significant event, but more than that, Robert is a close encounter witness as well as like so many of the military people we talk to on this show um I always say to them you know if you're looking at the visitors they're going to be looking back at you and that certainly happened um so Robert welcome to Dreamland I'm very happy
1: to have you on the show at last (laughs) great to be on your show Whitley um it's been a long time but uh I think we've known each other for a while. and uh, oh, Well, that's the trouble with being our uh, age. We've always known each
0: other for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, now, UAP is in the nuclear puzzle. Is a, is a redoing
1: of the book, uh, uh, how does that work? Yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> uh, I guess last year my publisher... Proposed that we revise the book that i've got published uh, called unidentified the ufo phenomenon uh, right publisher and um uh well because so much time had gone by i had i wrote that in uh, actually 2011 for the first time on um i think i self-published that one but um, Oh, oh i see so we wanted to do an update to bring everybody up back up to speed and and uh uh, renew interest in the main topics of of this book um, and those are uh, extreme government secrecy over the phenomenon uh, number one and then uh, uh, what the incident meant to me is regards to the um, warning of uh, the threat of nuclear war uh, you know it's you,
0: uh, it's it's a it, it, it is a, the two subjects that abductees and glisten encounter witnesses most often mention are warnings about environmental issues and warnings about nuclear war. And, uh, of course, those are the two key survival issues of mankind. Those are the two things that can do us in. And this, these are also the two things that, uh, I call them the visitors because I'm not really sure where they're from. <laughs> I mean, and they come and go in your life. I mean, they're here all the time, obviously, but they come and go in our lives. So I'm never absolutely certain uh, what what I'm uh, dealing with. Anyway, I'd just like to say Leslie Kane, an, another dear friend of this show, uh, m- made a wonderful comment about it, about the new book. U of P's and the Nuclear Puzzle will help inform the public and move us forward on our journey toward a new understanding of history, UAP, and our own true nature with respect to the larger reality that is revealing itself to us. And that's kind of going to be the theme we're going to work on. I want to start by just going over, and I know I I have talked about my communion experience thousands of times (laughs) and so now it's your turn to go back to (laughs) to malmstrom and and tell us what happened again um if you don't mind and Uh, i'm not going to ask uh, for a lot of detail because uh, i know my listeners and viewers probably know most of this story but hearing it
1: from the horse's mouth is important you bet no i'm happy to do it i i fully understand that um there are some viewers that may not even have heard of this story. And, um, that's right. Especially because this show has a lot of much younger
0: viewers. It's a surprisingly young show. Um, and, uh,
1: uh, so yeah, I think it's a good time to do it. Okay. Well, uh, in, uh, 1967, I was a missile launch officer, uh, uh, basically, I was in I was in the Air Force, of course, and uh, assigned to Malmstrom Air Force Base, Montana, um, which at the time had um, approximately 150 nuclear weapons uh, that could be launched almost instantly uh, in the form of the Minuteman One uh, missile system. It was, uh, it was a um, uh, solid fuel. Uh, intercontinental ballistic missile three stages um but it could be launched uh just about anywhere in the world at the time and uh so on this particular evening uh, uh, uh march the twenty uh, fourth nineteen sixty seven i was i was the man in charge because my commander had taken a rest break we had a little cut down on underground we were about 60 feet underground in a what we call it a hardened capsule, meaning it should have withstood a, a nuclear blast overhead. Of course, that had never been really tested, as far as I know. But uh, so I get a, a, a call from my topside guard. Uh, uh, we had about six security guards upstairs and he calls sometime in the evening and says sir we've been seeing some strange lights in the sky uh, flying overhead Uh, they're uh, flying very fast doing strange maneuvers stopping on a dime reversing course Uh, these are the uh, approximately uh, words that he used uh, reversing course and making no engine noise um sometimes hovering above us uh but then um he said they were not airplanes they couldn't be airplanes because of uh, what he described um um so i uh I even joked you mean like ufo's because we had seen uh reports in the local newspaper about uh people in the area sighting these lights in the sky and um course we hadn't received any official statements from the air force when we were debriefed prior to going out on alert we would get a briefing about what was going on in the field uh, any modifications programs or anything like that or status um but none of that was reported to us about ufos so i just kind of joked with him and he he said sir um but he was dead serious he said sir these are uh simply not aircraft and i just wanted to report it and so i thanked him for the report uh basically hung up and um and then about five or ten minutes i'm I'm not sure later he calls back and this time he's screaming into the phone he's shouting he's yelling he's uh unintelligible uh (laughs) And he says, sir, uh, when I finally calmed him down, he said, sir, there's a, a glowing red-orange light hovering just above the front gate. The uh, front gate was uh, about 12 feet off the uh, high, and uh, it was about, oh, I'd guess maybe 30 feet from uh, his location, what was it, inside the uh, uh, launch control facility building. And he wanted me to tell him what to do. Um, I know he had the guards out. He said, I've got all the guards. Their weapons are drawn. Uh, I think he was kind of hoping, I'd say, to go ahead and shoot at the damn thing. But uh, I hesitated a little because I, I didn't know what he was talking about, really. I, it just never occurred to me that something like this would happen. And all he was describing was a reddish-orange light that was pulsating at times. No sound, no noise, um, but the men were, he was obviously frightened and the men were frightened, of course, And but they confronted this object. And uh, basically, I told him, you know, do what you have to do to ensure that nothing in, uh, enters the facility, the launch control facility, which was the above uh, above ground facility that we had fenced in um and then he said okay i have to go sir one of my guards got injured uh, and he hung up the phone uh i for some reason immediately looked over at our status board and um, wondered uh you know in my mind if something or someone was going to try to um, shut down our weapons i don't know why i had that thought but uh, <laughs> uh, That's what I was thinking at the time. Now, they had no controls over the weapons system upstairs. We had all the controls downstairs, so there's no way they would have, uh, they, uh, I'm talking about my guards or anyone else, could have um, instituted some kind of a prank uh, to shut down our weapons. Uh, uh, There was no control. That would have been a fairly illegal prank, too, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, I mean Absolutely. that's jail time
0: <laughs>
1: um, so um, the next thing is uh, I went over and woke up my commander, Fred mywald, uh colonel Mywald retired uh, now deceased, but uh I woke him up, he was taking a nap, and uh I started to tell him about the phone calls, and then all of a sudden we get the these horns go off bells and whistles and horns when uh, something happens to any of the missiles under our control, we, we get this loud uh, alarm. Um, so we both look at the status board, and sure enough, one of our missiles went down, and then very shortly thereafter, every single one of the missiles uh, went down. By down, I mean they were unlaunchable. They were disabled. Um, while this object was still up topside, So we go through our procedures um, and check our, uh, we have uh, something called the the Versa system. It's a voice recorded um, activated system that tells us what the problem might be. And we're reading uh, guidance and control system failure on each of the missiles. We also had a couple of um, incursion lights, meaning... um, at two of the launch facilities these launch facilities were located about a mile or so away from this facility which we call the launch control center Um, and uh, two of those facilities had light indications that something or someone had tried to uh, enter that facility again illegally Um, so i called upstairs I wanted to find out what's going on with this orange red light, and uh, he he said it just flew off. Uh, the guard, there was a minor cut on his hand, um, but they decided to send him back to the base uh, to get some stitches, I think, uh, for the hand. And uh, uh, but it was it was relatively minor. It was not caused by this object. It was caused by some. Something the the guard did either with his weapon or possibly tried to climb the fence.
0: Yeah, they're they're probably pretty excited.
1: Uh, Probably pretty. uh, Yeah, they were. They They aren't right. They were. (laughs) Um, And that. um, Okay, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Well, um, we sent the guards out there to these two facilities where we had indicator lights of a possible incursion in those facilities and they saw these objects again uh, hovering above those facilities Um, so uh, we ordered the guards back and they came back again very frightened and uh, uh, then we went ahead of course and uh, called the command post Uh, my commander called the command post from air force base which is about 100 miles from our location and uh, they told us they were going to send out maintenance crews and get those birds back on on alert if they could at this point um, nobody knew uh, what the true cause was or anything Uh, um, but anyway that was the status when we got relieved the next morning we got relieved. Went upstairs, talked to the guard again. Uh, even though he was, um, I think he was already told not to speak to me um, uh, by his superiors. But I finally got him to uh, talk, and uh, he said basically the same thing. This object was hovering silently above the front gate. It was. And this was
0: when was in nineteen sixty eight, I believe. Sixty seven. Sixty seven. A time when, of course, people knew about UFOs, but it wouldn't necessarily have been the first thing that came to mind. I mean, it was just a strange light. That's right. Yeah. I was there in 1980, working or doing research for a book called Black Magic. And I was taken down into one of the facilities, uh, the command facilities, and shown the, the works and everything. And, um, uh, when i was uh taken to the missile themselves it turned out that the uh, the they uh they were some kind of a problem with the targeting and they, they one of the missiles there were people down in there working on one of the missiles that's nose cone was all opened up and so forth and uh i've always wondered if does that happen did that happen after any other times did you know of? Uh, not words, that
1: I know of. Uh, I was there for three years <laughs> and nothing like that ever happened except that one time. Because uh, you, you, you wouldn't, you would never have been told
0: again. I mean, it, it, I, I'm sure if it happened again, it's probably not right. on your
1: watch and therefore no need to know. That's right. In fact, uh, when my commanders. uh, finished his call with a command post at Malmstrom, he, he turned to me and said, uh, they told me the same thing happened at another flight of missiles. And I thought it was that evening, but as it turns out, that was the echo flight incident. I was at Oscar flight. Yeah. Uh, two different locations. Um, but, I've confirmed uh, in in speaking with the commanders out there at Echo Flight uh, on March 16th and through FOIA documentation uh, that the same, generally the same thing happened to them. UFOs over the facilities, uh, in this case the launch facilities, shut down all 10 of their missiles and that happened March 16th, 1967. That was just eight days prior to ours and and w- we crews were never notified of that we were never told that that happened but, yeah, well i
0: you know the military when it's dealing with something it doesn't understand it's going to be pretty closed mouth generally mm-hmm. especially when it has something to do with a, a weapon system as se- sensitive and important as the one you were assigned to right now Now, this is part of a pattern of interest in nuclear facilities and materials. It goes way back to, I think the first thing that could be related to this might be this Trinity event that uh, Dr. Jacques Vallée and uh, Paola Harris wrote a book about recently.
1: Are you familiar with that book at all? Yeah, I think uh, that story... uh what supposedly happened in 1945. Right. Uh, Actually, I spoke with one of the so-called witnesses, Remy Baca. Um, There there were two young boys supposedly encountered this uh, crashed object, uh, went inside in in the evening uh, hours and uh, pulled out some kind of a piece of hardware, and et cetera. I think that has been uh, debunked at this point. I I certainly did not believe Baca when I talked to him. I spoke to him directly. Um, I interviewed him uh, at his home. He showed me this piece of hardware. And and of course I had some experience with aircraft. Um, I worked for FAA for over 20 years as a uh, structures engineer. And so I'd seen a lot of aircraft parts. And this to me uh, was simply um, some kind of a casting uh, and probably a, uh, from some aircraft uh, It had nothing exotic about it at all. So uh, I don't know if you've talked to Valet or uh, Paula lately, but um, it is my understanding that... Uh, now this story has has fallen from favor as far as, as far as the truth goes. Let's say.
0: right. Well, that does tend to happen in this field. It's uh, yep. fraught with with problems like that, uh, and that what happens in the end is you you never really will know because of the phenomenon's ability to distort memory and cause people to say and do things that yeah that it wants them to say and do. And yeah. uh, to obscure its uh, presence yeah. in this manner. So,
1: However, uh, uh, yeah, I, I would add that in, in 1945 and in 1944, twice, as far as I can tell, uh, aircraft was scrambled over uh, Hanford nuclear facility. Hanford was no. processing plutonium at that time for the first atomic bombs. That's right, and there were
0: numerous. Which was the one where they were processing nuclear materials for medical purposes? It wasn't Hanford. Uh, there was another one that, that had also Oak
1: Ridge, maybe. I don't
0: know. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Maybe it was Oak Ridge that that there were incursions there too, uh, overflights yes. and strange events. Mm-hmm. It's like somebody has been pointing at nuclear weapons and nuclear materials and or or are they trying to it's just very hard to determine oh wait a minute as usual folks you will be there all my listeners are always and viewers happy to know that i forget the breaks and i forgot the break so we're going to do it right now uh we'll be right back who are they why are they here What do they want with us? Why is it all so secret? All of these questions are explored in my new book, Them, in an entirely new way. What do Close Encounter Reports tell us about what the visitors want with us? What is the military's experience? And can our memories be trusted? Can anything be trusted? Them answers all of these questions in a totally new way. It's available in hardcover, softcover, as a Kindle, and as an audiobook. Read by me. Get Them today. And what an incredible Christmas gift. Them, and you can get it from the UnknownCountry.com store, signed by me. We're talking to Robert Salas, uh, former USAF captain, nuclear missile crew commander, his book, UAPs and the Nuclear Puzzle, Visitations, National Security, and the Need for Transparency, which is something of an understatement considering that we have had no transparency for 80 years and still don't. I mean, now it's this has ended up in the hands of something uh, – an, uh, a new acronym a a r o which even uh you if you it is not for real it's another cover up and why is it all these cover ups Robert do you
1: have any sense of what it is that the defense department is working so hard to hide uh well if we speak from the aspect of nuclear weapons um I know that um, our defense as largely uh, our defense against uh, en- our enemies, let's say uh, real and perceived uh, as largely to do with nuclear deterrence. And we can talk about the fallacy of nuclear deterrence as far as I'm concerned that uh, all it has done is created more nuclear powers and nuclear nations and, uh, caused, uh, uh you know a race to see who can build the most bombs uh, a very expensive race by the way and um, put us in further danger i think it's increased the risk of having nuclear war this policy of nuclear deterrence or another way to say it is mutually assured destruction
0: hmm. Well, that's, of course, that was true in the Cold War when there were basically three nuclear powers, the United States, Britain, and uh, uh, uh,
1: Russia. Yes.
0: Now we have a situation where China is building out its nuclear presence at a tremendously rapid rate. Russia is still Mm -hmm. on the scene, Pakistan and India. Uh, Iran is working hard to build a nuclear arsenal. Uh, Israel's got a nuclear arsenal. There may or may not be nuclear weapons in South Africa. There's all kinds of places. Uh, uh, well, don't forget North Korea. And, and North Korea even. You know, all of these wonderfully stable, reliable states where you can count on the leadership to make sensible decisions. Yeah. They've got nuclear yeah. weapons. We're in and, danger. Uh,
1: and India and Pakistan are currently at war over the uh, Kashmir district right pakistan and like you say they're both nuclear powers um so and and pakistan has uh there have been indications they've been infiltrated by uh radical elements of uh, islamic jihad uh they yeah the the their
0: their nuclear arsenal is vulnerable to uh
1: infiltration like that. So it's a very,
0: very unstable situation.
1: That's correct. It is. Continues to be.
0: I'd like to get into your own experiences because I have talked to many military people on this show over the years. And the reason most of them end up on the show is two reasons. I mean, the reason you basically end up on a lot of shows is your experience with uh, at, at Malmstrom and the, your the your deep thinking about the significance of the nuclear threat and uh, what's being communicated to us but then again this is a show about close encounters mostly and uh, the spiritual aspects of that and you have had a close encounter at least one Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh,
1: 1985, uh, I was a civilian, actually working for uh, FAA at the time. And uh, we had a house in uh, Manhattan Beach, California. Uh, I remember the exact house in 85. Uh, And that's how I remember the date uh, of... um, of this incident because uh, of the location of the bedrooms, etc., And uh, I was trying to get closer and closer to the seashore. <laughs> so I would buy up uh, old homes in Manhattan and uh, refurbish them and then resell them. Uh, in order to uh, make a profit and buy another piece of property and get a little closer to the beach. That was my goal. <laughs> so I remember the house we were in in uh, when this uh, happened uh, and the year I owned the house, 1985. Uh, sometime during the evening, and we had two small children in the house, of course, our children, uh, uh, son and daughter, And uh, uh, sometime in the evening, I woke up for some reason and saw a blue light coming from our living room. And we had no blue light in the living room. Uh, um, I woke my wife up and asked her if she could confirm that I was looking at some kind of a blue light. And she confirmed it. I told her I was going to have to get up and check it out. Uh, There may be somebody in the house. So I did, I tried to get up. And as I tried to get up, I found myself paralyzed. I couldn't move. I just, and I remember the struggle I went through to get my uh, mobility. And I, I remember trying to move my legs, move my arms. (laughs) I struggled as hard as I could, and I couldn't move. you must have thought you were having a stroke or something. I, I, I can't imagine what was going through your mind. Well, I was frightened. Uh, I, I, I had a possible burglar in the house. Right. I couldn't move, and right. I even shouted out to my wife, and and now, she was unconscious. Believe it or not, she, just went back to sleep, I guess, but, uh, no, she, she didn't, didn't. No, listen. Didn't I'm, I'm too
0: to... familiar with this. She was knocked. She was turned off.
1: Okay. That happened to my wife many times. Okay. So at any rate, the next thing I recall was some kind of being or person in the doorway of our bedroom. And it had a hood on, uh, now, it could be from the shock of looking at this person, but I don't have a memory, a clear memory of what this person looked like. Of course, it was dark, it was still a dark yeah. bedroom.
0: Well, it's it's also uh, you you know now at this point you're dealing with somebody who can immobilize you. You one can assume they can probably also control what you remember about what you see. Yeah. We can assume that's a possibility anyway
1: absolutely uh and this added to my fear so i was still struggling to get my ability back and i was still frightened for our family of course and uh, then the next thing that i recall is uh, there being some what i would describe as small children in the room i know those
0: children all too well i can assure you they're not children (laughs) go ahead
1: and but that's the way it's, They struck me. I again um, don't have a clear memory of what they looked like. Only that uh, I felt that they were children uh, because of their size. And right. um, and then after that, uh, they seemed to be uh, uh, making me uh, elevate or rise off the bed and uh they were below me now and kind of uh moving me towards this window in our bedroom it was uh one of these double hung windows uh and uh it was locked i remember locking it as i was going towards this window and uh, i was thinking uh you know they may not be able to open this window, <laughs> so as it turns out, uh, they didn't need to open the window. They, I went right through the window. I know that sounds ridiculous, no, it
0: doesn't. Not to me, I've done it, I've had the experience. So, no, not at all.
1: And that's what happened. Uh, I went right through the window. Uh, now I was in my backyard outside. I remember a bright white light, and uh, then the next thing I recall is um, being on a table, or a you know a metal table, and being shown a long needle, a uh, type of instrument. It was uh, it looked like a needle to me, but they point they put the, this needle right in front of my eyes, and then communicated with me. um, And this was a, a, I refer to him as a tall being, uh, much taller than the others, and um, put this needle right in front of my eyes and communicated to me they were gonna insert this needle in my groin area, uh, and that it wouldn't hurt. Well, when they started to do this, it hurt like hell. I mean, it was yeah, I mean, very, that
0: experience too. They tell you it's hurt. not going to hurt, but that's not true.
1: It was very extremely painful. I, I remember that pain. You know, I think, uh, anyone who's experienced pain can tell you some of the worst pain they've ever felt. And, uh, and that was it. Uh, and I communicated that of course immediately. And, uh, and then the pain pain went away almost instantly. It just disappeared. It was you gone. Know, I
0: think they use hypnosis, I, and I don't think you you can remember the induction. I think that's, I think they hypnotized you into forgetting the pain.
1: They blocked it with the hypnotic suggestion. But go ahead. Could be. Uh, and uh, after that uh, procedure was over. Uh, they sat me up on the side of the table. They had two of those small beings next to me, and they were floating. They were not sitting, or standing, and then uh, they floated me off the table and sat me on a what I would say is a kind of a molded seat into the side of the craft. It was. Uh, um, and I sat there for a while, and they were like sentries, they were on either side of me. Um, and then they got me up and uh, took me over to another cubicle in the craft, and uh, there was another being there. Uh, and I, I recall he had a white smock on, but, you know, maybe I made that up in my head. There's, no <laughs> there's
0: no way to tell. There's absolutely no way to tell how these memories actually work or what they are memories of. Uh, but we can only report our best recollections and hope that we're in the right direction. Yeah.
1: Now what I'm telling you is all as a result of uh, uh, hypnotic regression I've had with um, three different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, at any rate, this, this guy in a white smock turns me around, uh, and just pokes two fingers down my back like this, uh, right down my spine. That's all he did. He just poked his fingers down my spine, um, and that was it. He turned me back around. The the two escorts uh, guided me along a a curved um, hallway, and... um, at some point, I saw a white flash, and I was back in my bed. And the next morning, of course, I didn't remember any of this. My wife didn't mm-hmm. remember any of this. It was not until about, um, I want to say 2008, so that would have been, what, 23 years later. Uh, we were in Ireland and listening to a uh, an experiencer who started her... Talk with telling us about being in her bedroom and a a bluish light kind of engulfed her in 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 this blue light in her bedroom. And uh, at that point, bingo! I turned to my wife who was sitting next to me and said, "Do you happen to remember a blue light in our bedroom?" And she said, "Yes." And uh, and so that was the first time we talked about it. And it was that evening. I, 23 years later, the first yeah, time. Yeah, 23 years later. So they are, Our
0: friends are nothing if not careful. They made <laughs> sure there was plenty of distance between you and them,
1: didn't they? Yeah, they sure yeah. So it happened that Mary Rodwell, you, you probably know Mary. Sure, Rodwell, I know Mary. I uh, happened to be there. Um, and I talked to her and I said, could you do a regression on me tonight? And she did. So that very evening uh, I had my first regression and tried to recover some of these memories. The, um,
0: the question of course of hypnosis is always a difficult one as to how it actually works and what, what it, it, whether or not we're constructing a narrative or, uh, or actually have remembering things but the you're fortunate in that you do have another witness to this light and your wife yes. and it, so this on some level
1: this happened and oh, i absolutely I, 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 that three, three things that on. convinced me that this was not a dream was of course my wife recalling the blue light in the bedroom yeah number one and then number two the uh The way i struggled to retain uh, to try to get back my mobility uh yeah uh, paralyzed and then uh, number three the extreme pain of that uh incident after the incident was there additional
0: did you the next day for example did you still feel uh pain in the
1: groin area you know i just don't remember uh anything about that incident the next day uh uh, I just don't recall anything about that next day.
0: I just asked because it was pain that caused me to remember my incident in the first place. Uh, uh-huh. I was, uh, uh, I had a, a rectal injury, and and it was painful, and uh, the pain became very noticeable over the next few days, and that was when the fragmentary memories began to come back, and I, of course. In my life, in 1985, when my experience also happened, I had no notion of any of this stuff. I hadn't thought about flying saucers since I was a little boy. And uh, I thought I'd gone mad. I, I thought I'd lost my mind. Okay. And in fact, the, the injury was the only thing that made me think that I had been assaulted. But initially, my doctor and I thought I was the victim of a crime. You know, I mean, a a regular crime of some kind. Right. Now, do you think, are you aware of any other incidents in your life that may have uh, been connected with this, especially in even in childhood?
1: Well, uh, two possibilities. Uh, When I was, and this I recall directly uh when i was a child um uh, a small child still in my crib uh, and again i know it's hard to believe but i, I recall not hard standing, to believe in this show don't worry about it <laughs> i recall standing up in my crib and and wondering out loud what am i doing here again uh, um, I remember having those thoughts and I remembered, you know, the physical act of standing up in my crib. Um, Also, I'll tell you a story my mother used to tell uh, a lot during holiday uh, dinners and things like that. Uh, Of course, my mother's deceased now, but uh, she used to tell this story often. And uh, the story goes like this. When she was a, a child, about 12 years old, I think, uh, she lived in Chandler, Arizona. Um, and one night she remembers uh, having a sleepover with some cousins and her sisters. So she had at least three or four sisters uh, with her and uh, a couple of cousins. And and uh, at one evening, uh, that first evening, um, sometime in the middle of the night, uh, everybody, Woke up and saw this woman in the hall in the doorway, uh, a white woman. Um, now, my, my mother is Hispanic, uh, uh, and uh, and so were all her friends and uh, sisters, of course. And this was a white woman that was not a neighbor that anybody could recognize. Her. Nobody recognized her, but she was the so called tall white with a long white gown. And she turns to my mother and smiles at her and then leaves. And that's all that happened that first night. Second night, she recalls uh, being woken in the middle of the night and uh, by a midget, as she described, a midget, <laughs> whispering in her ear. Some strange language in her ear that she couldn't understand, but it was whispering in her ear. She wakes up and shouts out. All the other girls wake up. They see this midget scamper away or leave quickly, and uh, and that was that. So, but for some reason, my mother loved to tell that story. Uh, when I tried to talk to her about the possibilities, these might have been uh, alien visitations, uh, she discounted that completely. She was a very devout uh, Catholic and uh, uh, didn't believe in such things, and so. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it could very well relate to, uh, to me. Uh, what is your, your ethnic background? I'm Mexican American.
0: On both sides? Both sides. Yeah. Yeah. I have, um, a bit of Canary Islander in my background, but I'm, I'm curious, is there any uh, is it is it all hispanic or, or are there, is there any
1: any do you know if there's any indian uh, yeah i've got some uh let's see <laughs> yeah i did do that twenty three in me thing or something like that uh, yeah uh so i do have some islander in me also um uh, uh spanish of course and then uh uh, let's see Irish, a little bit Irish and um, uh, I think that's about it. Yeah.
0: Well the when we did uh, we had the communion book out, we got lots and lots of letters and uh, we also had something called the Communion uh, newsletter and when you looked at the list of people who took the communion newsletter there were an awful lot of irish names and uh, and uh, and it's, it's, uh, scottish irish names and of course the fairy folk are uh, uh, that that all of that material comes from that starts in that part of the world so who knows what it's about uh but certainly one thing is quite true, quite clear, that no matter what in the larger sense it's about, one thing it is about is us. It's about us. And, you know, I wonder if you if you were chosen to have the experience at, at Malmstrom precisely because you would end up going out and talking about it. And I want to know what your motivation was, your original motivation, and when did you first decide to talk about this?
1: Okay, so one of the things that happened the day after my incident, uh, I'm talking about the Malmstrom incident now, is I got a phone call from these security guards that had actually seen this object. And they begged me to come and see them and talk to them, you know, because obviously this was, um, you know, you you can imagine whatever religions they were, this might've impacted their worldview about uh, God and religion. Oh, sure. Uh, Seeing this bright light, um, very, very, Magically hover and uh, shut down our missiles. Um, so they were begging me to come out and see them. but by then I had signed a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, if I had been caught uh, speaking to them um, about this incident, I could have spent a lot of time in jail. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: we, we're going to take a little bit of a break. We're going to unpack the non-disclosure ag- agreement a- after the break. We'll be right back. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful. A subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store, as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion. Listen to it. Read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. UnknownCountry.com It's huge. It's much more than just a whitley Streber book site. It contains thousands of hours of interviews, meditations, podcasts of all kinds. My original hypnosis tapes are there. You can actually hear the moment that I discovered that I at least was not alone in this universe in the office of Dr. Donald Klein so many years ago, Whitley Strieber audiobooks, Communion, Transformation, The Secret School, Breakthrough, Majestic, and so much more. Powerful meditations, but more even than all that, it is a community of people who are either looking to gain contact or actually in contact now. There is no community like it in the world. It is absolutely unique. Contact really is happening here. That's what these shows are all about. That's what my life and this website are about. It's real, and it can be of enormous benefit to us individually and to mankind as long as we take our part and do it our way this is what being a member of unknown country is about so go to unknowncountry.com and subscribe today join us and join very frankly the future we're talking to robert salas his new book uaps and the nuclear puzzle visitations national security and the need for transparency so before we left the air robert we were getting ready to talk about the non-disclosure agreement uh and i think it's let's let's get into that a little bit at what point were you asked to sign
1: an uh, NDA? well When we were relieved the next morning after our incident, we were relieved by another crew. Um, They had a helicopter waiting for us to fly us back to the base. Um, And we were ordered to go and report to our squadron commander immediately, and we did. Uh, Was
0: it usual for you to have a helicopter take it back to the Uh, base?
1: Most of the time we drove out there. That time i can't recall I, whether we drove or were helicoptered out but this time they certainly had a helicopter waiting for us as we exited the, the security building and uh, and they wanted to make sure they flew us back um right away so uh yeah we got back uh, to the base at malmstrom uh walked into our squadron commander's office who, by the way, was an old B-17 World War II pilot, um, uh, tough as nails. Uh, and he was white as a sheet. I remember his face. <laughs> he was white as a sheet, especially when I asked him, what the heck was that all about? Uh, was it some kind of an Air Force exercise, uh, something we didn't know about, et cetera? And uh, he said, absolutely not. Uh I didn't know anything about this either. Uh, But then uh, there was also a man from AFOSI, Air Force Office of Special Investigations, in the office. He walked up to us and said, sign here. Uh, I said, what's this? He said, this incident is now highly classified and you are never to talk to anybody about it. And that's what this document says. And if you do... uh, spending many years in leavenworth prison and it actually listed leavenworth prison which is the federal prison um and first i complained because we already had above top secret clearances and uh uh, we if we were told uh, something was you know highly secretive of course we wouldn't talk about it um uh but he says that doesn't matter now you uh, i want you to sign this document so basically we're forced to sign uh, a non-disclosure agreement uh, which as i said uh, required us not to ever uh, emphasize that word ever uh, speak about this publicly or to anyone to anyone really not our spouses uh, not anyone in the air force nobody. So we signed. And uh, you're here. And I'm here blabbing about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Now why what made you make the decision to do that? and why didn't you end up in Leavenworth?
1: Okay, well, um, in 1994, I picked up a book at a bookstore called Above Top Secret by Timothy Good, right? And up to that point, I haven't, I didn't speak to anyone about this. Uh, um, and in that book, uh, and I've still got it. Uh, if you turn to page three hundred and one of that book, it talks about an incident involving UFOs shutting down missiles at Malmstrom, and actually says nineteen sixty six, and then again in nineteen sixty seven so i I got pretty excited when i read that because i thought you know the air force might have just declassified the incident and so i went to move on the first thing i did was um, because i saw this little paragraph just a short paragraph in the book uh i told my wife when i got home and uh her friend happened to be with her and, and knew about um, MUFON, so I contacted MUFON later. And in order to see if I could get a a FOIA request, a Freedom of Information Act request going on this incident that happened as outlined in this book, mm-hmm. but not to say anything about UFOs, uh, I think I was smart enough not to do that. Uh, and so we did. We, we filed a FOIA request with the Air Force. The Air Force wrote back, said this was classified incident, still classified. And this was the ECHO flight incident. Uh, so they decided to go ahead and declassify it because it had been over 12 years and there was some kind of a limitation on on that so they declassified the Echo incident and uh started sending us documents. And so that was the basis of the first book that James Klotz and I wrote together. James Klotz was my investigator for MUFON that helped facilitate these FOIA requests. And uh as soon as the Air Force started sending me documents, of course I thought this was the incident I was involved in. Um, uh, which was an incorrect, turned out to be an incorrect assumption. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I I went ahead because I, I and went public. I went on the Art Bell show in, uh, I think, November of 96. Um, I did a sightings show. I don't know if you remember the show Sightings. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I did a show uh, on sightings, went public, and I actually gave an interview to the Great Falls Tribune um, in 96. So I went public based on the idea that this was my incident. But as I did more research and started talking to other people, trying to uh, locate my commander, I realized that I was not at Echo Flight. I was at Oscar Flight. So
0: your NDA still applied.
1: And my NDA still applied, as it does to this day. So, uh, to this day, I'm in violation of that NDA. Have you had
0: any blowback at all about that?
1: No blowback at all. None. I was never warned or told by the Air Force or anyone else that uh, I should not be talking about this. In fact, I have now given my testimony to Arrow, yeah, uh, And it's an official record. I've got it in writing that it's an official historical record uh, in their files. You
0: know, it, they would have, in that they classified the other incident, they'd have a hard time prosecuting you uh, because and, and maintaining that, yeah, one incident was fine to declassify, but not his incident which was similar and 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 he's not said anything other than uh right. other than so they that would be a hard case that they'd lose that case probably and they probably know that
1: that's what i'm counting on <laughs>
0: yeah. now is there and i'm not i'm not going to ask you to reveal anything but are there things in your memory that you do not talk about because you think that they still are classified and that y- you would be in some difficulty if you disclose them
1: yes there's certainly uh, aspects of my job as a missile launch officer that right i revealed uh you know some details uh, that are classified I, uh, I would, I could certainly be prosecuted for that, uh, uh, and I haven't. Uh, the, you know, the, the yeah. Parts of our job, parts of the job I had, uh, are sensitive and um, and should not be declined. Should not be revealed by me or anyone else.
0: And when I was down in that missile command center, they had the areas of the various control systems had to be covered with black uh, cloth so that i could even go in there So, and you know so it's still a very sensitive yeah
1: absolutely you're talking about do you you know
0: anything about any russian experiences that are similar to this oh yes uh wait, wait a minute i'm just noticing that we've come to the end of the first hour so Let's talk about this in the second half hour, in the in, in the final half hour, the Russian stuff. And also I want to get a little bit into your into you as a person, your your if you have religious beliefs and so forth, and trying to figure out what would make them because it seems to me pretty clear that you were chosen. It's not an accident that it was your flight that that this happened to. And uh, then they come back into your life later on, try to figure out if they were in your life earlier. And we'll, we'll have a lot of fun. Anyway, free dreamlanders. Thank you so much for being with us as always. And uh, we'll see you next week. And I hope we see you subscribe to the show. I know what and uh, because you could keep us going a lot longer. Okay. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.